You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and I'm so pleased that you could join us here today. Um, on Thursday afternoons, at least it's afternoon here on the west coast of California, I do a YouTube question and answer program. And so today, we're pleased to be here at my home. Uh, and I say we in the sense of, well, it's just me here alone in this office, but I'm here to spend the time with you. And so to me, it's kind of a we for our time together here. What we do on these Thursdays when we come together is I begin with a lead question and then we just open it up to whatever questions you may have that you write in on the side chat. We try to get to as many of those questions as we can. We're usually not able to answer every question, uh, and so we kind of take note of these and maybe come back to them a later time, but we do the best we can. And again, uh, very happy that you could join us, and I want to give a special welcome to our TWR360, that's Trans World Radio 360 audience, very happy that we can do this live question and answer in partnership with them and in conjunction with their website, TWR360. All right, let's get on to our lead question here today. And it's a question that simply asks, uh, was Jesus actually a carpenter? And this kind of question I like because it's just asking something fundamental but basic about the Bible and how do we know something. So here's the question from Shell. I think that's how you say the first name there. Shell Parks writes this question. I enjoy your commentary, but where in the Bible does it say that Jesus worked as a carpenter? Because all I find is that he was known as the carpenter's son. And as I said before, this is the kind of question that I really kind of love to deal with because it's just a very basic question. It says, how do we know this from the Bible? And there's certain things that we often just sort of take as if the Bible says it when the Bible doesn't actually say it at all. I'll give you one example of that. An example of that would be the idea that there were three wise men. The Bible doesn't say that at all. Just nowhere does it indicate how many wise men there were that visited Jesus sometime after his birth. But it's sort of gotten to the modern mind that there's three of them, so we often say that. Now, it's good to take very basic things from the Bible and just ask the question, how do we know that? How do we know that to be true? So, Shell, I appreciate your question, just wanting to know, how do we know if Jesus was a carpenter at all? Maybe he was just the carpenter's son. So let's take a look at a couple Bible texts here. First is the one shell that I think you're mentioning, Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, which says, and this is Jesus in Nazareth, and people are saying, is this not the carpenter's son? Is it not, is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? So here we see from that passage, Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, that Jesus was very definitely called the carpenter's son. Now, we could say that in that day and age, it was very common for the son to go into the same profession, especially the eldest son, which Jesus was, of his adoptive father, Joseph. 
it's very common for the eldest son to go into the father's profession. But that doesn't really directly say that Jesus was a carpenter, simply that he was the carpenter's son. Now, I want to make one more observation before I move on to uh, a passage in Mark chapter 6. It also says that Jesus had brothers. And friends, I just got to say that this is the straightforward record of the Bible. I know that some church traditions try to say, well, Mary never had any more children. Uh, Mary uh, was a virgin perpetually. I just need to say that's not what the Bible says. And the Bible mentions specifically both brothers and sisters to Jesus. The ancient Greek language, Koine Greek, the language that the Bible was originally, the New Testament was originally written in, it has a word for cousin. It's not using the word for cousin here in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, or in this other uh, section that we're going to take a look at here, Mark chapter 6, verse 3, which says, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. Well, Let's sort of leave aside the idea of Jesus having brothers and sisters. We could talk about that another time. But I just want you to notice that the parallel passage to Mark chapter 13, there in Mark chapter 6, says very specifically that they said, is this not the carpenter? And by the way, this is the only passage directly in the New Testament that tells us that Jesus was not only the son of a carpenter, he was a carpenter himself. And so, friends, that's just something to say. The Bible tells us, uh, Shell, if you want me to give you the most direct answer to your question, where in the Bible does it say that Jesus was a carpenter? It says it there in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Uh, however, I want to go just at least a little bit deeper, not very deep, a little bit deeper into this idea of what it was that Jesus was a carpenter. That word carpenter in the original language of the New Testament is tecton. Uh, we get our word technology and technical from it. It, it. It's more the idea of being a builder than a carpenter. Matter of fact, the same root for this word is used in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, that speaks of God as being a builder. And the same root for this word is used in Acts chapter 19, verse 25, speaking of craftsmen. So the simple point is just this is that Jesus was a carpenter, yes, but probably more literally, he was a builder. He was someone who built things. And in that day, at that particular place of the world, you could see where people built with stone as much as or even more than they built with wood. And so Jesus may have worked as much or more with stone as he did with wood. Because again, stone was a very common building material in that time and in that place. Now, one more thing. When we go back in our mind to Mark chapter 6, verse 3, where they said, is this not the carpenter? That was not a compliment. It was a way of pointing out that Jesus had no theological training they didn't say, is this not the Pharisee? Is this not the Sadducee? Is this not the scribe? Is this not the prominent rabbi? They didn't say any of those things. Is this not the carpenter? Jesus 
was never a formal disciple of a rabbi, much less himself was he a prominent rabbi in the traditional sense as well. Of course, in another sense, Jesus was a rabbi, he was a teacher, but not in sort of the traditional way of institutional Judaism at that time. So when they said in Nazareth, is this not the carpenter? They're saying, how can he teach such things? How can he have such power to heal and do miracles? He's just a carpenter. Now, even though I think that question was raised sort of out of ignorant prejudice, I think we can understand that question with a deep appreciation of the fact that the Son of God, when he added humanity to his deity and walked among us, he took a humble, a lowly place. Matter of fact, uh, there's one ancient writer, Justin Martyr, uh, second century, third century, I believe, second century, I believe. Um, Justin Martyr said that Jesus, when he, um, before he entered into the ministry, he specifically made plows and yokes, and that was just a humble occupation, relatively so, but an honest one. And we also have to consider this, that Jesus spent far more time working as a carpenter than he did during the days of his earthly ministry. Uh, Jesus would have worked as a carpenter, presumably, from his young adulthood, let's say 16, 17 years of age, all the way up until he was 30 years old. I mean, what is that? 13, 14 years. The years of Jesus's earthly ministry were only um, three years. So it's wonderful to think that our Lord Jesus Christ, out of all the professions that he could have chosen, he chose to be a carpenter. I don't know what it's like where you live. We have an audience that's around the globe, but in the United States where I grew up, they would have something at high schools uh, called career day. And, you know, they would have different people representing different careers and such. And you kind of think about, you know, what do I want to be when I grow up? You can imagine Jesus could have chosen any profession on career day if there was such a thing, if he grew up in Nazareth. But he chose to be a carpenter. God is a builder. And he knows how to build in our lives. And he knows how to finish the job. I think about some of the lessons that Jesus could have learned being a carpenter. You know, he, he learned that there's a lot of potential in a piece of wood. You take a look at a piece of wood and what could you, you could burn the piece of wood or there's potential to build something marvelous, something wonderful in it. You could say that Jesus learned that it takes work and time to make something usable out of a piece of wood. And that's normally how God's work um, in us goes forth. It, it happens with a lot of labor and with a lot of time. And then we, we also would figure that perhaps Jesus would learn from his time as a carpenter that some of the best things are made from some, some of the hardest wood. And Jesus certainly had to work with some hard wood, so to speak, some hard-headed men like Peter and others in the days of his earthly ministry. So yes, um, Shell, Jesus was a carpenter, 
it's wonderful that he was a carpenter, both for the general humility of the profession, but also for the fact that it reflects that God is a builder, and he loves to build in our lives. All right, one last story. There was a Roman emperor named Julian the Apostate. He came in after the time of Constantine and tried to roll back some of the Christianization of the Roman Empire that was happening. But anyway, Julian the Apostate was once asked by a, or once he asked a certain Christian, what do you think that the carpenter is doing now? Kind of a smart aleck question. Jesus, supposedly this great man, he was just a carpenter. What do you think the carpenter's doing now? Asked Julian the apostate of a certain Christian. And that Christian supposedly answered this. He's building coffins for you and for all your enemies. That's what he promptly replied to Julian the apostate. Well, look, of course, that's not literally true. But it's a fine comeback, I think, to something that an apostate would say. Jesus is still building. He's building in his people. uh, But he's also building something that will result in judgment for those who reject and resist him. All right, that's it for our lead question. I'm going to find my way now to my screen, to the questions that have come in through Devin, our moderator. And the first question comes from Ben, who asks this. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says that we were in Christ before the foundation of the world. My friends say no. What do you think? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Um, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Ben, I'm going to not agree with you, but I see what you're getting at. I wouldn't phrase it to say that we were in Christ before the foundation of the world. Let me explain to you why I wouldn't phrase it like that. I wouldn't phrase it in those terms because that could easily be taken to imply a doctrine that the Bible doesn't teach, and that's the doctrine of the pre-existence of the soul. Now, there are some people throughout church history and other heretical groups have taught, have sought to teach this, that each individual human soul is eternal in its pre-existence. We understand that there's a sense that each individual human being is eternal in a forward sense. They are immortal. They will live forever in one way or another. But we don't believe at all, and the Bible doesn't teach, the pre-existence of the soul. And and to say that we were in Christ before the foundation of the world um, it could imply that. Now, we were in God's plan before the foundation of the world, and that plan was made before the foundation of the world. So if somebody means it exclusively in that sense, well, then that gives us something to talk about. So we would just simply say that God has an eternal plan of the ages that he's working out step by step, 
generation by generation throughout human history. And certainly, God, being God, uh, knows those whom he has chosen, those who would respond in faith, and those can be said to be in Christ. And because God had engineered that and allowed for that in his plan from the beginning of the foundation of the world, someone could say that in that sense. So, Ben, I, I just think that to say we were in Christ before the foundation of the world, I think it's actually to sort of speak in such an unclear way that it almost invites misunderstanding. And to the best of our ability, we need to explain the ideas, the thoughts, the truth of the Bible in as clear language as possible. So, yes, God has a plan. Yes, choosing a people for himself is part of that plan. And their response to that choice is part of that plan. God is working out a plan of the ages. And those who are in Christ, God knew who those ones would be and has chosen those ones from before the foundation of the world. Uh, But again, I'm not comfortable with that phrasing. I am comfortable with how we can explain it. So, Ben, I hope that's helpful for you. I'm going to move on to the next question from Horatio, who says, If no one has ever seen God, John chapter 1, verse 18, who did Daniel see sitting on the throne in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9? Okay, good question here. John chapter 1, verse 18 says, No one has seen God at any time. Later on, I think it's in 1 Timothy, although it could be in 2 Timothy. Sometimes I get the Timothys mixed up. Paul also describes God as being invisible, whom no one can see. So if it's true that no one has seen God, that God is invisible, and Daniel saw some kind of figure on the throne, how do we reconcile these two things? Well, notice, when it says that God is, has never been seen or is invisible. What it's specifically talking about, if if you bring Scripture together with Scripture, it's talking about God the Father. You know, we, we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, not three different gods. God forbid that we would think that way. But one God in three persons. And God the Father is referred to when it says that no one's ever seen God or that God is invisible. Whenever we have some kind of representation of God in some kind of visible form, then we know that it's referring to Jesus Christ. Horatio, I would just say this plainly. The person whom Daniel saw seated on the throne was Jesus Christ in his pre- incarnate glory. It was God the Son before he added humanity to his deity and came and walked among us. So that's simply how I would explain that, Horatio. Those passages which speak about no one ever seeing God or God being invisible, that refers specifically to God the Father, not God the Son, because obviously Jesus Christ was God as he walked this earth, and He was obviously visible as well. 
Next question comes from Jordan. Jordan asks this question. What is your views on disturbing imprecatory psalms versus like Psalms 37 uh, verse 4? Okay, well, I don't think you meant Psalm 37 verse 4 because that's actually a very pleasing statement. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. So Jordan, I don't know what verse you're specifically referring to, but I certainly know the idea you're referring to. Uh, The imprecatory psalms, those are the psalms that essentially ask God to curse someone else. And we find these throughout the psalms. I I don't know how many of them there are in total. Maybe there's about 10 psalms through the 150 psalms where are very strong in calling down curses, calling down judgment upon other people. I I should have this memorized chapter and verse, but I don't. I'm struck by that particular line in the Psalms where David prayed and he said, Lord, break their teeth in their mouth. Listen, man, when you're asking God to break someone's teeth in their mouth, you're praying for a heavy curse upon them. And um, Jordan's asking a very logical question. How should we regard these? What are our views about these? Well, I'll give you my views on these, Jordan. First of all, um, hey, this is real. This is the inspired word of God. There's something for us to learn and to be edified from this. That's the first thing I think. Second thing I think is that if the psalmist, David or whoever it might be, if the psalmist genuinely feels this way, it's good and right for them to let it out before God. It's good for them to talk to God about it. Hey, if you've got ugly, hateful feelings within you, bring them to God. Honestly, don't come to God trying to pretend that you're a better person than you actually are. What's the point in that? Come to God honestly. You have to, and this is a phrase I repeat a lot because I think there's some real, honestly, there's some powerful truth in this phrase. You need to bring the real you to the real Jesus. And that's what the imprecatory Psalms do. They come to God raw. Lord, break their teeth in their mouth. Lord, crush my enemies, destroy them. You can bring that kind of thing to God. But also, and I think this is number three, number one, it's God's word. I'm making this up as I go along. Number one, it's God's word. Number two, it's good to be honest with God. Number three, it's good to lay those kind of feelings down before God. In other words, not just to bring them to God, but to leave them with God. Hey, if the psalmist prays, break their teeth in their mouth, he's not breaking their teeth. He's saying, God, I give it to you. I I want you to do it. Not not only because he knows that if teeth are to be broken, God could do a much better job than anybody else, but also out of the simple truth that God knows, I'm going to leave this to you. Hey, remember what it says a few times in the scriptures, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. And the imprecatory psalms are a way that the psalmist or anybody else or you or I, if we pray in the same spirit, we 
leave vengeance with God instead of taking it upon ourselves to carry it out. And that is a good and a precious thing to do. So look, if you think you've got some enemies that need to be crushed, need to be destroyed, you can pray strong prayers, but then in spirit, uh, in the spirit, I should say, of that passage that says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, leave the vengeance up to God. Again, it's much better to say it or to pray it or to write it out in a psalm than it is to actually do it. And I think it's a wonderful example of how God works. So, Jordan, I, um, and I don't want to sound strange for it because I, I don't want to act like you don't rejoice in it, but I rejoice in the imprecatory Psalms. I rejoice in every part of the scripture, and I think that they all have something to teach us. That we can be honest with God, uh, that we can lay things down before him, and that we can leave vengeance with him instead of taking it into our own hands. Thanks for that question, Jordan. I'm going to go on to the next question from Jim. Jim asks, were the apostles saved, born again, before Jesus died for their sins? Okay, Jim, I'm happy you asked this question because I love talking about this. And uh, what I'm going to tell you right now is something that uh, Christians from different theological traditions have uh, different feelings, different uh, opinions about. But I got my understanding from the scriptures, and so I'm happy to share with you what I think about this. Okay, my simple answer to your question, were the apostles saved or born again before Jesus died for their sins? Okay, <laughs> here's... I'm going to make a distinction, Jim. I'm going to give you more than you bargained for in answering this question. First of all, I'm going to make a distinction between saved and born again. Because I believe that before the finished work of Jesus on the cross, you could include the empty tomb and that the resurrection. But before that work of Jesus' death and resurrection, there were people who were saved but not born again. Let me explain what I mean. I'm going to define saved as being heaven-bound, in right relationship with God. They have the righteousness of God and God's Messiah credited to their life. Okay, I, I believe that people were obviously saved before the finished work of Jesus. They were just saved looking forward to the finished work of Jesus. Now, on the other side of the cross we benefit from something that Jesus instituted with his death and resurrection, and that was the new covenant. I regard being born again to be a feature of the new covenant. When you go through the new covenant passages, as they're explained in Jeremiah and Ezekiel most pointedly, but there's also material in Deuteronomy and a few other places, when you take a look at what the Bible says about the new covenant, you see that regeneration, new life, being born again is part of the new covenant, and the new covenant was not instituted until the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. According to my understanding, bringing scripture together with scripture, nobody was born again 
at least not in the normative sense that we think of today, before the finished work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. So, I would say that the disciples were saved um, if Peter, for some reason, had died before Jesus went to the cross, then uh, he would have gone to heaven because he trusted in the Messiah, Jesus, and what the Messiah would do. But on the other side of the cross, our side of the cross, we can be born again. We can be regenerated. I'll tell you, I can even give you the exact moment that I believe that the disciples were born again. It's recorded in John chapter 21. No, maybe it's John chapter 20, where Jesus met with his disciples. And this is after his death on the cross, after he paid it all, after his resurrection. Jesus met with the disciples. He breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you that if Jesus Christ, the risen Lord of glory, breathes on you and says, receive the Holy Spirit, I think you receive the Holy Spirit. And that was the moment, I believe, that the disciples were born again, that they received that benefit from the new covenant that Jesus came to give us in and through his death and resurrection. So, Jim, like I say, I think I gave you more of an answer than you were bargaining for, but... um, The disciples were saved before Jesus died for their sins because they trusted the Messiah and what he would do, but they were not born again because that's something that was brought about by the new covenant and the new covenant was instituted by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, very good. Let me come on to the next question um, here from Luna. Luna asks this question, why is the first council accepted when the Bible was agreed to be what it is now, and others are denied by Protestant churches. All right, Luna, um, I don't know if I'm tracking exactly with your question, but let me answer it according to what I think you're trying to ask. I I would say that for the most part, Protestant churches do accept more than just the earliest council. I think you might be referring to the Council of Nicaea. That was the council that happened early in the fourth century. One of the first ecumenical councils. Um, But Protestants are generally accepting of um, subsequent councils as well. I'm thinking especially the Council of Chalcedon. I, I think Protestants are accepting of that. But there came a time where after repeated church councils, that um, not all of them were, I don't know, came to the right conclusions. And look, I'm not going to go through and give you specific councils and stuff like that because I'm just not prepared to do that off the top of my head. But, But Luna, I could say this, that when Martin Luther stood before the emperor at the um, Diet of Worms, uh, he stood before all those officials before the Holy Roman Emperor, he affirmed that both councils and popes can and have erred. Therefore, our only final um, measure of the Christian faith is the Bible itself. 
this doesn't fail. Now, our human interpretations of this may fail, but the Bible itself never fails. Now, you, you may say that councils are more reliable than popes. Maybe so. It's an interesting argument to make through history. But I don't think we should claim consular infallibility just as much as we would not claim papal infallibility. It's possible for either councils or popes to uh, err. That's why we should not simply say uh, whatever a council has decided, it must be God's truth. Instead, we thank God for the work of many of the good councils throughout church history. Hey, Nicaea was awesome. Chalcedon as well. We thank God for what he has done through these councils, but we don't regard them or the work they produced as being necessarily um, infallible. Valuable, yes. Infallible, no. So I hope that helps you there, Luna. And thank you for that question. It's, um, you know, we're putting out on the YouTube channel some church history videos, and uh, I guess this is going to probably prompt a few more questions about church history which I'm happy to answer, at least to the best of my ability, uh, which isn't um, endless, of course. Okay, next question comes from N, where we have this question. Is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, the same as Mary Magdalene? Okay, I, I can answer that right off, N. No, not the same. Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, is known as Mary of Bethany. Bethany was a community very close to Jerusalem. Uh, So uh, right there in Judea, near Jerusalem. Mary Magdalene was from Magdala, a village on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee. By the way, if you take an Israel tour like we did recently, One of the places that you may very well visit is Magdala. Uh, You can see various ruins there, including the ruins of an ancient first century synagogue, which almost certainly Jesus preached in that synagogue. We say almost because, you know, there's no graffiti on the wall that says Jesus preached here. But um, Jesus did make it a custom to preach throughout the Uh, synagogues of the Galilee region, and that would have been one of the more prominent ones. So anyway, that Mary was from Magdala. That's why we call her Mary Magdalene. Instead of being Mary of Bethany, that's the Mary that was the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And then it says, which washing of feet is referenced in John chapter 11? Um... Okay, I'm going to just take a quick look here, because again, I don't know all these things off the top of my head, so what I'm going to look at right now is the Enduring Word Commentary, and I'm going to take a look here at 11 to, no, that's not the one we're talking about, um, because that's the healing of Lazarus. Okay, you might be talking about, yes, the... Washing of feet mentioned in John chapter 12 is very definitely Mary of Bethany. There was a previous washing of Jesus' feet 
I think, referenced in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and in that particular one, that was um, Mary Magdalene. Matter of fact, if I'm just looking at my notes, maybe I'll see the um, notes there, but I'm not seeing it. Luke chapter 7. This is a, a different occasion altogether. That was Mary Magdalene. Okay, next question comes from Virginie. Hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly there. It's not Virginia. Virginie asks, can the miracles that the apostles did in the Acts of the Apostles be done nowadays? Okay, Virginie, uh, let me just say, it kind of depends on what you mean by be done. Look, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And anybody that Jesus healed in the first century could be healed today. Any person that was raised from the dead in the first century could be raised from the dead today. Uh, any miraculous deliverance seen in the book of Acts can be seen today. Jesus Christ is the same, and he still works astounding miracles. But, Virginie, I'm just going to take apart a little bit your phrasing. Can the miracles that the apostles did in the Acts of the Apostles be done nowadays? They can happen. God can do them. But it is not within the power of men and women today to do such miracles. And I would even argue that it was not in the power of men and women to do them in the book of Acts. Sometimes people get a very strange idea. Th these strange ideas will come to those who believe in the gifts of the Spirit and those who do not believe in the gifts of the Spirit for today. Both sides can err in this idea. And the errant idea is simply that miraculous power was in the hands or the being of the apostles themselves. Like they could just walk around and go, boom, you're healed. Boom, you're healed. Like it was, you know, lightning coming out of their fingertips. That's not the Bible's idea at all. Uh, basically, God would choose to heal a person and he may or may not raise up a human instrument to affect that healing. That's what we're really talking about here when miracles are done in the New Testament and when they're done today. I, again, I, I run across strange ideas. People say, well, if people had the gift of healing, the gift of miracles today, why don't they just walk through a hospital and then just say, you're healed, you're healed, you're healed, you're healed. But I would just say that that's not how the gift of healing worked in Bible times, and it's certainly not how it would work today. As if it was under somebody's, their own initiative, their own, you know, desire and will. No, it's all under the will of God. And when God wants to heal somebody, he may or may not use a human instrument. But, I'll go back, Virginia, because I think this is the main way in which you meant the question. Simply to say, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And whatever he did in New Testament times, 
he can do today. Um, I'll make one reservation to that. There is one gift that was given in New Testament times that I do not believe is being given today. I guess you could say, on this particular point, I'm a one-point cessationist. I believe there's one gift that God no longer gives, and that's the gift to hear him perfectly, without error. Now, friends, God is God. God can only do that which is perfect. God can only speak perfectly. But what was different about New Testament times was for those, especially those writers of Scripture, those writers of the New Testament, God gave them the gift to be able to hear him, to be able to receive from him perfectly. Surely, the Holy Spirit was working mightily in any author of Scripture so that whatever they wrote in those original, what we call autograph manuscripts or letters or whatever they were, whatever they wrote was God's perfectly inspired word. Now, I don't believe that God gives that gift anymore because we don't need any more pages added to our Bible. We don't have a perfect revelation coming through prophecy, coming through experience, coming through the supernatural today um, because God isn't speaking imperfectly, but we can only hear and receive imperfectly. So again, um, but apart from that, Virginia, I would say very much so, what God did in Bible times, he can and does do today. I can't stop talking about this. Let me make one more reference. I want everybody to understand this as well, that the book of Acts is basically written over a span of 30 or 40 years. Uh, Let's say 30 years. The book of Acts was written over a span of 30 years. Keep that in mind. Because when we read the book of Acts, we have the tendency to think that, um, wow, there was a miracle happening every day. And that's natural for us to get that kind of perspective just from the way that we read the book of Acts. It's a concentrated account. But there are many church movements. There are many seasons of God's work. And I'll include that among that, um, the movement that I come from, the, the Calvary Chapel movement, beginning in the late 1960s. If you were to take the Calvary Chapel movement from the late 60s to the late 90s, a 30-year period, and if you were to write just some of the more spectacular and miraculous highlights of that 30-year period, it would read very much like the book of Acts. So we just need to keep a little bit of perspective on that um, and, and believe that God can move and work today. All right, let me go on to the next question here that comes from uh, Peter Sony, please, if I'm not pronouncing your name correctly, please forgive me. I'm delighted that you're writing in Peter Sony, but let me give you a question here. Can you please express your biblical stance on the image and likeness of God in us? Well, I think that's a very good question, and uh, I know I got some good notes to that effect 
in my commentary. So let me just go here to where it says that um, mankind was created in the image and likeness of God. First of all, I do want to stress that um, from my reading of the book of Genesis, I don't think it's talking about two different things when it says the image and the likeness of God. There are some people who try to make that case um, that there's something different between the image and the likeness. No, I, I just think that this is a feature of uh, poetry, number one, to say the same thing in repeated ways, but it's also especially a feature of Hebraic poetry. So I don't think that image and likeness are two different things. I think they're just expressing the same idea in an intensified way. And I would just simply say this, that our understanding of mankind, of each individual man and woman, begins with knowing that they are made in the image of God. That makes humanity different from every other order of created beings. It obviously makes us different than the animals that dwell on this earth, which biologically speaking, we're very similar to, but there's something different in humanity. We're made in the image of God. It also makes us different, at least in my understanding, from the angels. Angels are mighty, exalted creatures, but nowhere does the Bible say that they are made in the image of God. Humanity is unique. And this means that there is a connection between the divine and the human that is absolutely wonderful. There's a connection between the divine and the human that does not exist between the divine and the angelic. We are capable of closer more real relationship with God than even the angels are, and obviously even um, the animals. Now, look, I believe that animals or angels can have some relationship with God, but we, we as human beings, have a different and have a more intimate relationship with God. Um, To be made in God's image also means that human beings, like God, have personality. We have knowledge and feelings and a will. But not only personality, we also have morality. We're able to make moral judgments, and we have a conscience. And then finally, you could say that it means that human beings possess spirituality. We are made for communion with God And it's on the level of spirit, actually, that we communicate with God. So there is a lot to this. I would recommend you take a look at my commentary on Book of Genesis, chapter 1, and the relevant verses there. But I think it is exciting and wonderful to see that we are, in fact, made in the image of God. Let me go on to the next question from Champions, who asks... Can God call someone to ministry through another human being? How can I be sure that I have been called? Okay, champions, I believe that some aspect of a call to ministry could come through another person, but ultimately it will be confirmed to the individual. Um, 
I would not feel comfortable at all with somebody going into ministry who felt no personal call, no personal prompting to the ministry, but other people just told them, yeah, you should be in ministry. That, that doesn't sound or seem right to me at all. Now, again, I want to stress, God can use someone as an aspect of the call, but there should also be some individual sense of assurance, of calling, to go alongside what other people have said. I can say that before I ever uh, did anything in ministry, at a prayer meeting with some friends, someone spoke words over me that they, they thought were inspired from the Lord, and I thought they were inspired from the Lord. And as part of those words that they spoke over me, they talked about a call of ministry, and that was never on my radar at all. But this, this was just kind of said that God has a calling on my life. Well, later on, I had some significant and profound experiences of calling for myself. So God can use both, but I would be hesitant if a person's call seemed to come only from other people and not from something that the Lord had spoken to them or had assured them, given them assurance of directly. Uh, Bob asks us, who is on the picture behind you? Okay, I thought somebody might ask about that because the first time I put up, this is a picture of Charles Spurgeon. My son gave this to me as a uh, present for my birthday recently. And it's just a sort of an artistic version of Charles Spurgeon uh, writing out or with the word preach. Charles Spurgeon, if you're not familiar with him, he's a big favorite of mine. I've read a lot of Spurgeon over the years, and uh, he's been a great blessing to me. Uh, but he was the greatest preacher of Victorian England. And so ministering from uh, early 1860s all the way up till the early 1890s, Charles Spurgeon had a remarkable ministry. Some people say that he was the greatest preacher in the English language ever. And uh, I don't know how you ever measure such a thing, but certainly he was a great preacher and a man who genuinely loved God's word. So um, I'm happy my son gave that to me, and I don't know how long I'm going to keep that up, but it's Spurgeon, who was a great preacher. That's why it says preach. Okay, next question comes from Ken, who asks, Can you explain the difference between the fear of the Lord, as in reverence fear, versus the perfect love drives out fear in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. Well, 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, talks about there being no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And when we just take a look at that passage, we understand that that's talking about what um, older commentators, because this is using a little bit of older English, we talk about it as being a servile fear. A servile fear. Think of a, um, a beaten down person uh, who's been beaten time and again, and then uh, somebody raises their hand up against them furthermore, and they cower in fear because the, look, that's the kind of fear that God's perfect love puts away. Now, there's another aspect of fear, 
which Ken made reference to it. It's fear connected with reverence. It's fear connected with honor. That kind of fear is completely compatible with the work of God in our life and our walk with God as well. So there is a significant difference. And I would say that uh, the fear that we're to avoid, the fear that God wants to take us, take, um, take us away is fear that would want us to have nothing to do with God. It's fear that would make us afraid of what he might do to us. It's, fray, it's fear that tends to divide relationship instead of deepening true honor to God. That's probably the best way that I would explain that, Ken, and I hope that's been helpful for you. Next question comes from Dusanka. Dusanka asks this question, should we still call ourselves sinners after being regenerated, or is it better not to speak that over oneself after the Lord Jesus sets us free? Wow, uh, Dusanka, very good question, because we do want to honor the reality of what Jesus Christ has done in our lives. And in Jesus, we as believers, we are not just forgiven our sins. We are set free from the dominion, from the power of sin. Um, it's, it's remarkable to think that all God does in the life of a believer, and I can see what you're getting here, Dusanka. Now, it seems kind of strange for us to take a look at this amazing glory of what God has done in the life of the believer and then still just think of them as a sinner. Okay, so that's on one side of the question. But Tisanka, there's another aspect of the question. It's just being honest with the fact that we will continue to sin, hopefully less and less, but we will continue to sin until um, we are glorified with Jesus Christ in heaven. We remember what John says in 1 John um, chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And he's writing that to believers. Look, we still sin. But it's wrong for us to think of our primary identity as being sinners in Jesus Christ. Uh, in Christ, we're adopted. In Christ, we're sons and daughters of God. In Christ, we're kings and priests. In Christ, we're servants of a majestic Lord. Now, we, we do continue to sin. So we don't want to pretend that that's not the case. But at the same time, we are wonderfully justified. We're wonderfully declared righteous by Jesus Christ and his work in us. So I, I see the difficulty that you're dealing with, Dusanka. I guess what I'm really getting at is that I'm more interested in the heart that someone has behind this more than the actual words that they say. If someone 
knows they're a child of God, knows that Jesus Christ has made them born again by God's Spirit, knows that they're a temple of the Holy Spirit, knows all these marvelous um, things that God has done for them. If someone knows all those things and then is able to say, well, yes, I'm a sinner, I still sin, okay, great, then that's in perspective. But if someone were to call themselves a sinner as a believer, without an awareness of their wonderful standing and status in Christ, that's how I would question that. Answer is a little more complicated than maybe you thought or I thought at first, but that's a, that's the best that I can give you today. Next question comes from um, Oath. My God is an Oath, who asks, "Is the Restrainer the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit only in the saved followers of Christ? Grieving the Holy Spirit doesn't mean He leaves you, right?" Okay, you're asking actually three questions there, so let me just address them quickly. First of all, the restrainer referenced in uh, 2 Thessalonians, or is it 1 Thessalonians? I get it mixed up. When it says that he will be there till he who restrains is taken out of the way, yes, that restrainer is the Holy Spirit, but he's not removed, he's only taken out of the way. His His hindering influence is no longer active, if we want to use that phrasing. So yes, the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. Secondly, is the Holy Spirit only in saved followers of Christ? Um, Yes, he's only in them. The Holy Spirit can be with those who do not yet believe. He's with them in the sense of the conviction of sin. He's with them in the sense of testifying to Jesus Christ of them. So the Holy Spirit's relationship to those who do not yet believe is described as a with relationship. But then, uh, when a person is born again, when they put their faith, their trust, when they believe and repent, then the Holy Spirit is in them. And then thirdly, you ask, grieving the Holy Spirit does not mean he leaves you. Right, that is correct. Um, The Holy Spirit is given to the believer as a seal, as a permanent possession. And we shouldn't regard the Spirit as being something that is given and taken away, given and taken away. Now, the Holy Spirit may lessen his activity in someone's life because they have grieved him, but we're not talking about removing. We're just simply talking about lessening one's activity. Hope that's helpful for you there. My God is an oath. And then finally, the last question we're going to deal with today is from Alfredo, who asked this question, how does the church establish effective evangelism besides proclaiming to evangelize without putting any work? Should door-to-door evangelicalism make a comeback? Okay, Alfredo, I'm just simply going to answer it like this. Maybe. Look, I I think this is what everybody needs to do who's trying to reach their community. They need to try to understand what, in a cultural sense, will be the most effective way to meet that community. And it will change from place to place, from generation to generation, from neighborhood to neighborhood. If there are neighborhoods that can be effectively reached for the gospel 
by going door to door, then Christians should do it. If more people will be reached by first making contact with people online, then Christians should pursue it. Um, you know, when I first gave my life to the Lord, um, evangelistic concerts with the Christian bands were an extremely effective evangelism method, if you want to say strategy. I, I don't like using that terminology, but it was something like that. Let's just say approach, an extremely effective evangelistic approach. Today, not so much. It's really not the same. M maybe that day will come back. But I think what we need to do is prayerfully come before the Lord and ask that he would give us, so to speak, the keys to reaching our community. Don't be afraid to try some new things. See what God's hand, see what God's blessing may be upon and do the best we can. Listen, no matter what, Alfredo, I'm always encouraged when churches are doing a little bit too much in evangelism rather than too little. Uh, it's been said about people, you know, somebody questioned someone else's, I think this might have been Dwight Moody, they questioned Moody's evangelism work, his evangelism approach. And this is what Moody said. He said, I prefer the way that I do evangelism to the way that you don't do evangelism any day. And I think there's something powerful to that. So hopeful that's, hope that's helpful for you there, Alfredo. All right, folks, we've been together for more than an hour now, and I'm very pleased that you could join me today. God bless you, and thank you so much. Thank you to Devin and our moderators. Thank you to everybody who joined us, even if you're quiet. Blessings to my in-laws back in Sweden. Gunnar Nils, if you're watching, I love you. Blessings to you. And uh, thank you so much, everybody, for your prayers, for your support of what God is doing in and through Enduring Word. It's very exciting to see what God's doing. So thank you for joining us today. And I hope that you can join us next Thursday, God willing. And if I live, I will be here with you to talk about that. So again, thanks for joining us. And we'll see you again this coming week. God bless you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.